Hello, I'm Caroline Carey. I'm a soul worker and soul doula. I have a deep understanding of the soul's journey from cradle to grave, and I've traveled between the veils of the spirit realms. I've studied the path it evokes, and I've come to understand why the majority of today's problems are rooted in the loss of spirituality. So my work, which is Middle Earth Medicine Ways, empowers people to find what is lost and to reclaim their own circle of strength by embodying their soul. And I do this by holding a space for healing and soul retrieval with shamanic skills, trance and conscious dance. I love creative writing and poetry. Please join me in listening to these wonderful teachers and soul workers, the facilitators and the guides of spiritual and shamanic work. They all have something very important to share and are a great gift to our communities. I've learned a lot from listening to them. I invite you to also. I'm delighted to have you here sharing with us. Um, you know, women's voices are really important this day and age. I think it's going to be wonderful to hear what you have to say. And as a writer and a fellow writer, um, I, I want to know more about you. I'm very excited. I, I got to know about you a little bit through your Boudicca. Is that the right mm -hmm. way to say it? Boudicca? Yes, yes. Um, which really excited me. There was, there was so much there of value for me. I found it tough going in parts. Um, but I'm not a great reader, but it was a really important, really important for me. Um, we now have a, a very beautiful dog called Boudicca. And, uh, oh, <laughs> what, what is she? What, what She's sorry. a lurcher. She's oh, a fantastic. Lurcher. And we have another one now called Freya as well. So there's the need of these, yeah. these incredible women. So Fantastic. Yeah, lots of feminine energy. But tell me a little bit about you and how did you first get into writing? What's your, a bit of your history around this? Um, when I first got into writing, I was nine years old. So I, I, I read, I was a really geeky, introverted, I think probably quite a lot, well, my partner would say a long way along the spectrum at even now, but definitely as a child. Um, so reading was my escape. I, I read all day, every day. I would go up to the library. You were allowed four tickets in those days, actual physical things. I'd go to the library on Saturday morning get out the books, come home, read them, take them back the same day. And it would freak the librarians out because their system was not designed for people who took out books in the morning and brought them back in the afternoon uh, and get it more because otherwise, what was I going to read all week? Um, so, so I wrote my first book when I was under 10 and it was little and it was mainly my mother ran a rehab center for birds of prey. So it was the perspective of the world as from the barn owl. Um, you know, it's not not something you'd want to write, read, but but in those days, writing was my thing. And then I discovered that veterinary medicine existed, so I I qualified as a vet. And um, I came. I lived in Scotland. I came down to Cambridge. I was a house surgeon uh, in Cambridge, and then I began to study anaesthesia. And then I moved to Newmarket and started doing racehorses because that was my thing. Also. Mm. Um, and along the line there, there came a point where I realized I then I ended up back at the vet school teaching anesthesia and looking up the professional tree and thinking there's not a single bit of that that I want to be doing when I'm older. Why? Why am I doing this? Because it's not on a trajectory that I at all. I mean, if, if 
at the, now you have referral centers and and there are people who who do what I love doing, which was anesthetizing animals all day, every day in really high class referral centers. In those days, the vet schools were the only referral centers, but but I was on a five year limited tenure and then I was going to have to get a PhD and then I'd end up in an admin job, not actually working, doing what I wanted to do. So um, so I spent about a year and a half trying to work out what I could do that would feed me. And I was already studying the shamanic work. So. So in the end, what I came down on was that writing was it, but I didn't obviously start with Boudicca, um, partly because I needed to do a writing apprenticeship. I wouldn't have phrased it like that then, mm. but there had to be quite a lot of learning. So in the beginning, I started on my 30th birthday because someone had sent me um, an actual physical thing taken out of a magazine, because this was in the days before email was extant, to uh, a competition run by Virago and their criterion was it had to be written by a woman and it had to be a boat and their exact phrase was a feisty feminine sleuth and I hated that phrase so much and I spent the first half morning just writing what I thought about the word feisty because it really just set everything on edge and then I started just writing a story and I was shortlisted for that which was pretty amazing given that I was still working full-time as a vet and I had very little time to write I would get up early in the morning or weekends when I was on call. If I wasn't actually in at the vet school, I would I would be writing. And I got an agent um, courtesy of a friend who wrote the best selling computer program game that there had been at that point. And his agent stopped being a book agent, became a computer agent on the strength of him. But her best friend, when I contacted her and said, hey, would you like to agent my book? Because I thought that's what you did. Um, her best friend had just become an agent from being an editor. So I was one of her first authors. Mm. Um, so I had the agent, I had the shortlist and the, and the winning book obviously was going to be published, but then, and then I wrote the rest of the book and then they canceled the competition cool. um, for reasons that still I don't fully understand, but I had the book by then and the agent. So that was Hen's Teeth and that came out. It was shortlisted for the Orange Prize the year after it came out, which was the kind of thing that now I realize is really remarkable. And in those days, it, yeah, that's just what you write a book. It gets shortlisted for a major literary prize. And, and nobody would bat an eyelid because as far as they were concerned, writing was this really weird hobby. And, and you know, what matters is the study we're doing on, I don't know, cruciate ligament repair in, in, the, in the Labrador and we've got another one and you need to be doing it. And, and so it just went over everybody's head. Um, I was writing a lot of television at that point because it seemed to me that was a useful medium and I'd been on a couple of courses, whenever I got time off, which was very rarely, I would go away and do a residential somewhere just to be amongst people who took writing seriously, because all of my social network were academic vets and none of them took it seriously. So that was it, really. That was the story. I love I love the beginnings of it, you know, being under 10 and you write your own book and and the, the, the yeah, the theme around that was fantastic. You wrote about what was present in your life at the time which yeah yeah of course what else can you do yeah what else can you do exactly yeah. yeah so so how long before you started to think about Boudicca and the trilogy and what led you to that um what was the inspiration for that do you think well the inspiration was was the spiritual training that I was doing in shamanic work so 
So I had committed in ceremony to writing about our shamanic past, probably before I ever started writing or around that time. I don't remember. It's all like this is this is a movie I once saw of someone else's life. It's very different, but long before I started writing. But then when I first wrote, I was writing crime novels because well, first, I didn't know I was writing a crime novel with with Hen's Teeth. I just wrote a book and it was the editors who said, you know, first of all, you have to tidy this up. And second, you have to decide what genre it is. And we would recommend crime because it sells well. Fair enough. Do whatever you say. Um, so the first three, they were the crime novels. And then I wrote a fourth standalone because I made a number of writing mistakes. And the first was that I wrote first person in a crime novel from the perspective of someone who wasn't in the police. And I would always write a crime novel from the perspective of someone who's not in the orthodox police, because fundamentally, most police work is really, really dull. Also, you'd have to do a huge amount of research for it to actually be accurate or read a lot of police procedurals by other people who've done a lot of research and then base your stuff on what everybody believes to be true, but isn't because if you actually wrote actual police work, it would it would be unreadably dull. So I and yet there comes a point where from a first person perspective, anybody sane who finds yet another dead body or, you know, something is going to go, that's got nothing to do with me. Send it to the professionals. I don't want to have anything to do with this. Um, otherwise, they just begin to seem weird. Also, I was finding the limitations of first person because because show don't tell is such a huge writing thing. And I, I find novels unreadable that are novels that that are just telling you what happened and if you don't do that from a first person perspective and you have a single first person perspective then your protagonist has to see everything okay so so they have to be in a lot of places at once or you're quite limited with your tunnel vision of what's happening and you there's a very well-defined limit to how often you can have someone phone them up and tell them something's happened or walk in the door and tell them something's happened or see it on the television find that something's happened it just doesn't mm. doesn't work so and my editor said, so I started off the women's press published the first one. It got shortlisted for the orange and suddenly having had a bunch of editors going, oh, well, plot's quite nice, but we can't have so many lesbian characters. That's just, you know, you'd have to you'd have to change the characters and me going, fuck that. I'm not doing that um, to the women's press. who went, well, the characters are great, but the plot a little bit too violent. We're going to have to tone it down a bit. Oh, really? OK. Um, but then it got shortlisted for the orange and suddenly lesbian characters are completely fine. So headline took on the series and I'd written those three. But then my editor at headline said, if you really want to make it big in crime, you have to write an international thriller. I thought, OK, I'm sure I can do that. So I'm still working full time at this point. Um, so what I did, No Good Deed was a very different kind of novel. It was multiple third person. It was one of two of the protagonists but no it was mainly two two viewpoints and i had read a book called miss smiller's feeling for snow do you know it mm -hmm. uh, it's great it's a really really clever novel and it was written in danish and the translation was beautiful but the main relationship is with this woman smiller who's a greenlander and a young boy who dies in the opening page his death is is the puzzle that she is resolving and you get a lot of their relationship in in kind of retrospect but you know he's dead 
And I thought that's a, such an interesting relationship. What would happen if you had an adult woman and a young boy who isn't her son and he isn't dead on the first page? And then what would happen? I'd read a book called Shoot the Women First or Kill the Women First, which was the instruction given to the German anti-terrorist police when they were hunting in Baden Meinhof because apparently the the men of the Baden Meinhof would just walk into a room with a machine gun and spray everything and quite often miss. That's not a very efficient way of carrying out terrorism, whereas the women would, would find a, a useful spot and wait as long as it took until they could kill the person they wanted to kill. Women make really good snipers. And so their instruction was kill the women first, they are far more dangerous. And I thought that was really interesting. What would happen? What would it take? Because then there was a lot of debate around then of when that book came out of, well, women shouldn't be killing anyway. And I thought I was doing battle reenactment. I was fighting as a warrior all of my free weekends. And I had no doubt at all that if someone put an actual blade in my actual hand in an actual battle, I would have no trouble at all killing the people coming at me if I was good enough. Mm -hmm. um, and most what I discovered in the line fighting and that then fed through to the Boudicca books is in a battle which is two rows of people coming at each other and essentially devolves into a bunch of single combat, you know before the first blow is struck who's going to win in 99.9% .9 of cases. Because you just do, you just walk up to somebody and you either know I can beat them or they can beat me. And, and you just know it. And the only ones that are interesting are the ones where you go, oh, really, I don't know. I don't know on this one. And it's going to take a while to work it out. And then everybody stops to watch because that's the one that's important. And that's the one that will turn the tide of the battle. Um, so all this bollocks about women can't kill was bollocks. But I thought I'd be really interested to explore the idea of what would it take to push a woman to the point where she would kill in the defense of something that she really cares about. And I had no idea what she would do, but I wanted to find out. And I also thought, actually, I need this person to be on the right side of the legal line, because if someone in the police or the army kills someone, generally they get a medal. If you're not in the police, you're not in uniform, then they, they lock you up unless there's a very good reason not to. So, and I didn't want to write actual police procedural because as previously said, really boring. And I'd spent quite a lot of time in, Den in Ireland. Uh, I'd gone over to do veterinary work at the vet school in Dublin mm. and just spent a lot of time with Irish people listening to their side of the troubles. Mm. So I set my character was someone who'd survived the murder of her father in Northern Ireland, come across the UK and joined Special Branch because Special Branch in Ireland, Northern Ireland, was they had no restraints at all. They did whatever the fuck they wanted, frankly. Um, they were, you know, they were said to be a force within a force. And when the police acknowledges that, you know, this is the Met who haven't yet acknowledged that they're institutionally sexist. When they acknowledge that there's a force within a force, then you know it's really there. Um, and there were quite a lot of, again, articles coming out at that point because we were at the point where drugs and terrorism were beginning to interface. So terrorists were funding their terrorism by selling drugs. And therefore, MI5 was running domestic policing operations saying and, and using the police basically to serve the warrants because that's the only thing that MI5 couldn't do. And the police really didn't like that. Um, so there was a big turf war happening in the UK at that point. So I thought, OK, I'm going to put someone on the police special branch in mainland Britain, but they're going to behave like they do in Ireland. So I had this woman undercover 
young boy and and the opening scene is is her and him and her breaking him out of the place where he is and then he's a witness to a murder and she has to protect him and just i just wanted to push my the real interest in that one was let's just i had this kind of felt sense in the in my solar plexus of i just want to see what happens when i drive her to the point where as far as she can tell the only possible action is to kill someone to keep the boy safe and will she do it wow um so that was no good deed and that got shortlisted for the edgar and got all kinds of accolades and my editor was really chuffed although towards the end she got the first draft and she said i thought i told you to write an international thriller i said well it's got characters from ireland set in scotland the main other character is swedish and in the end they go to canada isn't that international and she went no international thrillers are set in america oh i'm like what 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 kind of cultural imperialism is this and and also you didn't want to tell me that nine months ago was that a big secret and you thought you'd wait until i'd finished so we were having we were having big rows. We were communicating in the end through my agent, where I would scream at my agent because I wasn't very good at emotional regulation at that point. Um, and she would translate it into plain language or nice language for my editor, who I have no doubt would scream back at her. And she'd translate that back to me. And I was hating that process, but also wanting to give up the day job. So I was walking on Newmarket Heath. I was still working. By that point, I was juggling four different day jobs, all of them part time to try and not end up working nights and weekends because all of the full-time veterinary stuff meant you work nights and weekends and I don't like that really mm -hmm. and it gives you no time to write so lots of jobs got my lurcher um walking on Newmarket Heath and she went off after a hair and I was I had been thinking about the sequel to No Good Deed which was called Absolution I'd been planning it out in my head and she caught this hair and she brought it back and she didn't catch hairs very often she wasn't a very efficient lurcher but she caught this one and um and it turned out to be a doe in milk oh. which was catastrophic because for all of the gods of this land hares are sacred yeah. um and i thought you know i should have stopped her i should have seen it before her i should have seen that she was watching something and i was just i wasn't even paying attention at all so i looked for the kits and, and i couldn't find them and that would mean basically they were dead um so my real lesson, one of the lessons at that point in the shamanic work is the gods will whisper and then they will speak and then they will shout. And if they get to the point where they're shouting at you, you are going to really wish you listened at the whisperings or speaking stage. And a hare and its young dying because I wasn't paying attention was, was as close to a shout as I would ever want to get. So I took the dogs and went into I lived near Thetford Forest and at that point in Thetford Forest there was a hazel tree that was huge like literally I could not have begun to wrap my arms it would have taken five people with outstretched arms to get around it and that was my sit spot for a lot of my meditations so I went and sat there I did what we would now call a vision quest people get quite upset about cultural appropriation but I don't, you know, it's a, a language that means something to people. And I am absolutely certain that indigenous people throughout human history have spent time alone without food and water talking to the gods. So you can call it whatever the fuck you like, really. I don't care. But it, what matters is you do it and you do it right. And um, I didn't do it brilliantly because I had promised to write something about Boudicca and 
and it, it, I'd been sitting for maybe a couple of hours and what came was, and my question was, what do you want, what do you want of me? Because it's clearly not writing this next book. Mm. So, so what is it? And, and the answer was right, Bodhi Ken. I'm like, no, no, you, you can't be serious. No, no, no. I need to be a much better writer and I have no money and I have no time. And this is going to take massive amounts of research. And I don't know anything about this era. You know, I, I write contemporary stuff because it doesn't take any research. I just talk to pathologists about how they would kill people. Um, so I, I genuinely had done no research for the first three books. Um, so I spun it out a lot longer than I probably should have done. And eventually, eventually I bargained with the gods, which again, you know, now with my shamanic students, list of things not to do. That's quite high on the list. But my bargain was, okay, I think it was, it was just before crime scene 2000. It was June of 2000. I had enough money to last maybe two or three months before I was going to have to find a, a real, t a real job full time. Um, I was, okay, I will do the research. Um, I will give it a month mm -hmm. and if there's enough, I'll do it. And if there's not, I'll come back and we'll have this conversation again because I don't, I don't know I can do this. Mm -hmm. So I went home and, and phoned a friend like you do. The only person that I knew who wrote historical novels was a historical crime writer at that point. Cause I was then, I was in the CWA crime writers association. Okay. If you're going to write stuff, join the association. I later set up the HWA historical writers association because mm. it's an amazing thing whatever you're doing, to sit around and eat and drink with people who also do what you're doing and who get it and who understand that sometimes the most interesting part of today's work was where I put the semicolon and sometimes it's plot and sometimes it's the stuff that comes in and and sometimes I just want to rant about my publishers. You have to have people you can do that with and yeah. writing is a very solitary thing. Yeah. So the crime artist was brilliant. So I phoned up this person and said, I think I need to write about Boudicca. And I said, well, don't be ridiculous. You can't do that. Your publishers will never let you. They're branding you as a contemporary crime writer. You, you can't just change the brand. Mm. Um, and then and there isn't enough to write about Boudicca or I would already have done it. Uh, really? Um, exactly. But yeah. but you don't promise the gods and then not do it. You know, that's of all the things that really, really bad idea. That's exceptionally bad. Mm -hmm. So um, I lived near Cambridge, obviously. I was at Newmarket. Um, and working at Cambridge some of the time. And so I had access to the Cambridge Copyright Library and, and all the academic libraries in Cambridge, which was amazing. So I just basically spent the next month in Cambridge and I had the archaeology library and the anthropology library and the classics library and, and everything I could possibly have wanted. And by the end of a month, I don't, I don't know how much you guys are writing stuff, but normally the outline for a book is, you know, six lines of it'll be about this. But we all know it won't really because the book is never what you thought it was going to be. But be kind of about this. Um, please give me some money. And that's what it had been up until then. And I had 23 pages of a synopsis, which I have never done since <laughs> and have no intention of ever doing. But I had to prove to myself and my agent um, that this that there was enough to write about because no one had ever written about Boudicca before the revolt. Everyone before and since who's written The Life of Boudicca has written what Tacitus said and turned it into history. Okay. Tacitus and Suetonius, which is, sorry, Dio Cassius, which is the really, as far as I'm concerned, the least interesting bit. I wanted to know who we were before the Romans came. 
Okay. Yeah, once they've annihilated us, I, I recently just did um, a series of four 90 minute lectures for Ubiquity University um, on because I had said in a previous thing with them that as far as I'm concerned, we are now in the dying days of the Roman Empire um, because we have Roman values have been imposed on us since the invasion and we took them on board after the revolt failed. Um, so we've got acquisitional capital, capitalism and the commodification of land, labor and capital and the commodification of people and the whole insanity of a, proper, a woman becomes the property of her husband, having been the property of her father. And the whole you, know, you have to live in little units of two and your children must know who their parents were, because otherwise mm. they certainly have to know who their father was. Otherwise, how do you get patrilineal descent? The whole thing and, and the abstraction of people from their connection with the web of life is all Roman and we have not got over it. So anyway, I wanted to look at who we were before. Yeah, I've been talking a long time. I'll stop. So I did that that's really. That's and 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 last bit. So this is the interesting shamanic bit. That was I went to a thing called Crime Scene 2000, which was, I think, in June, obviously, of 2000 and sat in a panel talking about crime and, and someone in the audience, God love them, said, so what are you writing next? Which, of course, is every writer's favorite dream, because the book you're talking about, you wrote 18 months ago and you can't remember it because you're writing something completely different unless you're Ian Rankin and you write the same thing endlessly. So um, they said, what are you writing? And my editor was in the audience. And as aforementioned, we were not getting on. So really, just to piss her off, I said, oh, I'm writing a, a historical series about the life of Boudicca. Three books, they're going to be huge. Uh, and she was really pissed off because they didn't want it. Uh, it was headline. They didn't want it at all. Um, and I carried on doing what I was doing. And we got to September and I had literally got three weeks money left and really didn't know what I was doing because I was loving the writing. It was going really well. But I was having to do huge amounts of research. Right. I was spending you know first bit of every day in Cambridge in the libraries and coming home and writing and dreaming with the fire so that I knew what to write for the next day. Um, and this editor that or person walked up and said, I, I was at Crime Scene 2000. How, how are you getting on with the Boudicca stuff? And I, well, I've got three chapters in the synopsis. And she said, OK, I just got a new job at Transworld. They want me to take on something big. This sounds big to me. Would you like to send it? And we did. And they bought the world rights for more money than I had ever seen. Mm. Um, having and headline had offered, I think, 10 grand for the entire series, which you know, given that it was going to take five or six years to write, it was just I, I you know, that's just risable. I can't do it in that. Mm. Um, so I got to give up the day job. And then not long after that, three books became four because the second book was was getting so big, we chopped it into two. So that was it, really. Sorry, that was very long winded. No, that it's, it's really interesting, Mando. And, 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 you know, you're bringing in the shamanic and, you know, this has obviously been a big part of writing Boudicca. And mm. I, I'm, I'm very curious to know, you know, you went from being a veterinary practitioner um, all these other things that you've you've done, and that and you've always been had that interest in writing. But where did the shamanic come into it? What do you think led you down that path, or was that just innate within you? Was it always there? Um, do you think that just kind of grew, or was there something specific that yeah, you on yeah. the path? And, and then when you when you recognised that, where did you go with it? You know what? Huh. How did it? How did it 
become part of your writing, in fact. Okay, working backwards, it became part of my writing because it is my life. Okay. I do, I, you know, every part of my life, every breath that I take uh, is, has that as its central focus. So it would be impossible not to. However, if we, if we backtrack, I was born and brought up in rural Scotland. Yeah. Um, and I had a pretty unconventional lifestyle bringing, upbringing because my mother did run this. You know, we grew up with a lot of wildlife in the house. So I was already in a different reality than most of my peers. But there was a specific instance. My dad took, who was an engineer, really hardcore, straight down the line science, um, took my brother and I to, I'm sorry, my dog's scratching it. That's the thump in the background. To the Brochs. Do you know what the Brochs are? No. Okay, so um, Northern Scotland and all over Northern Scotland or Northwestern Scotland, vast, I think they're 30 or 40 feet diameter, maybe bigger actually, stone beehives that were seven stories and they're double skinned. So so really wide at the bottom and, and curving up to the top and seven sections. And the cattle would be in the bottom section and the people inside, obviously in the middle. Um, and, and then a, a layer and then the hay and then a layer and then the grain and then a layer and then other stuff being stored all the way up. Incredible structures of really ancient prehistory and all the same. So somebody traveled all around with, with the design and how to build this. Um, and dad took us to see the Bros because he was really into archaeology and stuff. And, and him and Kid brother are wandering around talking about geology and stones. And I was standing in the middle of this thing, feeling the push of the people around it in a way that mm. had never happened before. And I had just read Rosemary Sutcliffe's Eagle of the Ninth. Have you ever read that? No, I haven't read that one. Oh, it's amazing. She's just, uh, it, it, that was the transformative one. But, okay, it's the story of young Roman youth whose father has been disgraced because he's lost the Eagle of the Ninth. So the Eagle of the Legion is, is its soul. And, and it was true in Rome. I later wrote the Eagle of the Twelfth that if the eagle was permanently lost, then the legion was disbanded. And this was terrible dishonor. But if one person lived and kept the eagle, then the legion would be reformed. So in a military culture, losing the eagle was a really bad thing to do. Um, and the ninth actually wasn't lost. But at the time that Rosemary Sutcliffe wrote the book, she in the 50s, she it was thought that it had been. And so it's the story of this young man and his native servant slave, Eska going north of the wall into the barbarian lands, so into where I lived, um, to find the eagle. And they find it and they bring it back. And it's, and I read it later, just before Eagle of the Twelve. It's incredibly, it's colonial, it's sexist to an unbelievable degree. But when I was eight or whatever, I had no idea about that. It was just this magical story. And the most magical bit is when they get north of the wall and Eska manages to get them invited into the tribe of the seal people and the priests of the horned moon god go off and do something and they have got the eagle and they've got it in their sacred dwelling and they go behind the goatskin curtain and you don't see what they're doing and then they come out having done it and i was desperate to know what happened behind the goatskin curtain and and everything i read everything rosemary sutcliffe ever wrote and you never get to see the magic happen and I just, I am, this is my people. This is, this is, I need to know this. And so most of my life actually has been 
trying to work out what could have happened behind the goatskin curtain. Um, and I so when I was at college, I, I joined a druidic group. I was at vet school in Glasgow and I used to go through to Edinburgh to a druidic group in Edinburgh that, that actually we worked a lot in the caves near Roslyn Chapel, which later became famous with um, Dan Brown stuff. But it wasn't they were trying to do druidic stuff, but it it wasn't working. We weren't really connecting with the gods. We were learning ritual, which isn't the same. Mm. And then I came down and after I studied vet med, I, I obviously I came down to Cambridge and in the summer between leaving Glasgow and coming to Cambridge in the autumn, I read, I found Castaneda and read all of that because I'd started meditating. I'd started doing a lot of pagan stuff, but it wasn't, didn't feel to me that it was a living connection to the gods of the land. It was theory about how we could and about what might be happening. And it was a lot of mythology, but that's not the same. So um, I'd read all the Castaneda stuff and then I came south and I had a year and a half of just, oh my God, Cambridge is just so full on. And I was really hardwired into kind of left brain reductive medicine. But then, then I went to Newmarket and I had a really odd experience. My, my boss was the neonatal equine intensive care expert for the entire world. Because Newmarket, because if you spend half a million pounds on the stud fee for your thoroughbred foal, you're going to spend whatever it takes to keep it alive if it's born with difficulties. So we had every machine that went ping. We had everything that you could possibly want, stuff the vet school would have given its right arm to have and never did. And so I was his main assistant. So I ended up sitting up with the foals mm. and he had we had one foal that was born at 298 days of gestation and no foal had ever been kept alive that had was less than 300 days. So this was it. We were going to keep this all going, whatever. And I had sent off for some books at that point, Sun Bear's um, book on the medicine wheel had just come out and a couple of others. I'd, I'd, they'd come in one of these book lists that you used to get. And I like, oh, wow, this is the kind of stuff I really was interested in. And they arrived when I got called to sit with this foal. So I spent 72 hours sitting with a dying foal, reading these books and getting no sleep. And at the end of it, I had a blistering row with the boss, which basically went along the lines of this is inhumane. You can't keep doing this. And he sacked me on the spot and then unsacked me for three months because he knew he needed a, an assistant until the end of the following season. So it was all pretty ignominious and horrible. But in that unsleeping, reading, sitting with something that is perched on the edge between life and death, all kinds of things shifted inside. And when I got out, I Eagle's Wing with Leo Rutherford's Eagle's Wing had just started yeah. and I applied for that and, and got onto that. And, and that was a year long training and a kind of induction into a very soft and friendly and safe version of shamanic practice, which was I would not have handled anything else at that point. Mm. Um, and I don't think it really connected me with the gods, but it opened doors that let that happen later on. Yeah. Yeah. Again, a very long-winded answer. I'll stop doing long answers. No, but that's, that's great. That's got, I, I know Leo very well. Yeah. Okay. There you go. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. It, it's really lovely to hear that connection there and how you found all of that. And so now um, you're 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 offering shamanic work yourself. You're still writing, of course. I presume you know. I'm writing newly. I stopped for three. I thought I'd stopped, but no. Really? What are you yeah. writing at the moment? Um. It's called The Promise. It's um, a throughtopia. So it's future. It's set in 2024. 
I, I, we need to see how we're going to get to where we need to go. And we need to see the steps to get there. Okay. Um, okay. If you're interested in shamanic work, this is quite interesting because I genuinely had stopped. I went and did a master's at Schumacher in economics, regenerative economics, shamanic imperative. Not something I would ever have thought of doing otherwise. But sometimes the gods say you have to do this and there are no reasons not to. We've closed every door. You just have to do it. Yeah. Um, came home, moved over the hill to, to this, what was then a very tumble down small holding and really got into regenerative agriculture and the podcast and accidental gods and all that sort of thing. And I, in July of this year, I told a very good friend who's also a writer, I'm done with writing. I'm just not doing any more. It's not effective as a way of changing the world. And we haven't got time for the length of time it takes to write a book and get it out. It's just too slow. I had written a television series trying to do the same. Anyway, um, I taught there's I teach a cycle. So you come and do a foundation and then every year you do a different gate of the places on the medicine wheel, east, west, south, north, center, and then the southeast, which is the place of the ancestors. And in the teaching that I have, I wouldn't let anyone, they don't come to ancestor gate except by invitation, because the first teaching of this is just because you die doesn't mean you get to be wise. And a lot of people I've seen get into real trouble mm. being hooked onto by people who have died that have not yet done the processing work that needs to happen. So you have to be very careful. So it is far and away the scariest of the things that I teach. And all the way through COVID, I was going, no, we're, we can do everything else online, but we're not doing that one online. It would just have to, I have to be in the room for that. And eventually it got to June or so of last year. And I had a couple in Germany and one in Switzerland and a couple in Ireland all going, we, we're not going to do this. We're not going to have two weeks of quarantine to come over to Britain and, and do it, you know, it's just not going to happen. Please do it online, whatever it takes, do it online. Okay. Um, so I was, we did ancestry get online and I was drumming for the big journey on the Saturday night. And sometimes I journey when I'm drumming, but not usually. And I got taken up the hill. I live on the edge of a hill and absolute plain text, which very rarely happens was I needed, I, on my altar, I have a 30,000 year old fossilized horse's tooth that holds part of the ancestor gate. Yeah, it's great. I lived near a, a little shop in Cambridge when I was in Cambridge that sold these things. And I had to take the horse's tooth up the hill, bind it onto a particular horizontal bit of a very, very several hundred year old hawthorn hedge and sit there as the sun went down for at least an hour in the evening. I usually do most of my stuff on the hill in the morning. So Took me a while to source the horse skin that I had to bind it on with. But anyway, I took it up the hill, bound it on, sat. And the instruction was, do this until you're told to do something else. Okay, it's fine in the middle of summer. I'm not going to enjoy this in the winter, but let's see. Um, and by the end of the week, I, I had the first question of the book. And then the instruction was, right, now you need to write this book. Don't worry about the hill anymore. I'm going, but, but sit up the hill and go, no, no, just write the book. So I started, I was, I was studying for homeopathy. I had an exam at the end of July and I couldn't, I couldn't move my head out of the homeopathy. I don't want to fail. Um, so I started on the 10th of August and as of yesterday, I'm at 82,000 words, which in books that I write don't usually go that fast to begin with. Mm -hmm. So the fundamental premise, it starts, the first 2,000 words are it's told from the perspective of a woman who is talking to her grandson. And he says, when you come home, can we 
got he'll watch the rooks settle because he knows that's what she likes doing actually he wants to play computer games but he doesn't say that and she says i'm not coming home i'm dying this is it you do know this we have talked about this mm-hmm. and over the course of the ensuing conversation he says you're the only person who gets me and i don't want to live in a world with you not in it and she realizes he's serious and she says i don't know what happens next but if it's possible at all i will do whatever it takes if you call me if you really need me i will be there and and they both feel the gods you know the world stop and the gods go oh, really and then she dies and then the rest of the book is told from her perspective of having to honor that promise uh, particularly when her lover dies quite soon after and she can't follow her to where she needs to go but then he she is taught in the process of not him of helping him to not kill himself the night she's died she's shown how to split the timelines and see the possible future spreading out from any given present and as the book progresses she sees the timeline where he and the younger sister who's conceived at her funeral <coughs> are are absolutely integral to us getting through Mm. And so when he repudiates her because of events that have happened, she has to still try and stick around and nudge him. And and so it's just really how do the those who have been and those yet to come feed their wisdom into the present in a way mm. that helps the present still have choice, but but gives them the opportunities to step into needs basically i'm writing the revolution um but but i'm having to work i want it to be a peaceful revolution i'm not sure it can be i had a very interesting conversation recently with uh kim stanley robinson who wrote the ministry of future and offline afterwards he went you know the revolution can't be peaceful don't you i think it can i think it can sitting with xr in the streets my real experience is if the yellow jackets sit down with us we have won Mm. And that's a big if, but they are human beings yeah. and it can't be impossible. I like that. I really like that, Mandel. Thank you. Yeah, so, gosh, there's so much here. There's, there's so much here. And I love this this shamanic, you know, weaving that you talk about through your writing, through your books and through what you're offering now in the world. I'm particularly interested in what you just said about, well, we can't write a book there isn't enough time to write a book mm. about the solutions and, and how we need to, you know, to live our lives now. And yeah, I, I, I get what you're saying with that. So um, what, what would your, I don't know, what would, I, I don't know about advice, but, you know, for this, you know, for women who are writing, women who are going through the process of exploring their voices and their, their message for the world, um, you know, what would you say is 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 the way to go these days? Like, you know, we've got some important stuff that we need to share. Yes, and I think the um, thing is, I was wrong about that. I think it it's not that writing is too slow. It's that I didn't have the ideas that I didn't have the idea, and now I've got it. I'm like, yeah, you know, I have to get this book written and get it out. Yeah. What we're doing. So I think I think there is no point in writing continuations of business as usual or the past anymore having you know spent the last decade writing historical forget it for me i don't see any point in that okay. i we're launching my partner and i faith's doing the website as we speak really um next year my big push is 
a thing called Throughtopia Masterclass, which is going to be a hybrid between a think tank and a writing masterclass. Because what I realized is if I wasn't doing the Accidental Gods podcast, I wouldn't have had the input of ideas to write the book that I'm writing. And it can't be just me writing the way through. We have to have everything. I, I have a friend who until recently wrote for one of the big soaps and, and they would continually put in, you know, character X takes out the recycling and it would be continually edited out. And eventually they go to the senior editor and go, why? And they, they said, because our funding depends on people wanting the next granite worktops for their kitchen. And if you start undermining that by putting out the recycling, we don't get any more income. So it's not that things like Coronation Street, it wasn't, but whatever, I don't know what the soaps are anymore. Coronation Street probably doesn't exist, um, are forgetting about that. It's, it's deliberately not in there. Okay. And that has to change. Yeah. So I, what we're doing is we're going to have six months, starting May 1st, of half an hour, I'll be on Zoom. Someone comes and gives someone who actually has a concrete vision of how the future could be short future. I want to 2030 to 2050. This is how it feels if we get it right, because we don't need the dystopias anymore. We, we know how it's bad it's going to be if it goes wrong. We don't need utopias because no one believes them and they're always predicated on this magical bit of technology or this complete change in humanity. And, and there's no obvious way of getting from here to there if that technology doesn't miraculously happen. And we can't keep relying on nuclear fusion or wet 3D printing suddenly arriving and solving everything because what happens if it doesn't? So I want the people who've got the ideas of this is what it feels like. This is how it works. This is how we got here. Half an hour of that, half an hour answering questions from whoever's gathered, all the writers. I want anyone who wants to write to be on this. Mm -hmm. Then the speaker can bugger off. They can stay if they want, obviously, but they can bugger off. We'll have a 10 minute pee break, comfort break, whatever. And then we'll do an hour and a half of a writing masterclass based on writing characters and places and ideas and storylines on what we've just heard. And we're going to set up, there's a thing called Circle, which is now you know as much as I do about this, how it works, but it apparently is a bit like putting Facebook on your website so that we can keep the conversation going because two weeks later, we'll do it all again right. and again and again and again. And by the end of six months, I hope we'll be having conversations of everything that we're feeding in. And if we can have many hundreds of writers, then they're going to generate so many different potential futures yeah. from what we've heard and then you know if we get it right we just keep going because there's yeah. i don't think there's a shortage of people who have ideas yeah. what there's a shortage of is people other people taking all of those ideas and synthesizing them into stories because what i've realized is i was wrong we need the stories of if we don't have a vision of how the world could be if we give up flying and change how we eat and change the whole foods, you know, on a regenerative mixed farm. I think this whole vegetarian thing is bollocks, frankly. But um, we need to have total systemic change and emotional literacy and conscious evolution. If we don't have some kind of concept of how that feels like, we can't aim for it. Mm -hmm. you know, most people seem to be going from denial to despair with nothing in the middle because there's no vision. COP26 just happened and there wasn't a single vision from any of the world leaders of how the future could be. It was just, oh, well, we're going to have to cut back a lot and, and offset everything. And that's not going to work. We need visions. So writers, please, please write the visions of the future. If you have time, come along to the masterclass. We're going to have to charge for it because I do want to pay the speakers. But, um, you know, it's, it's going to be a flexible thing. So 
don't let money be the thing to stop you, but just write the future that works and how we got there. I, I love that. Write the future that works. Wow. That's powerful. That's really powerful stuff. Thank I you hope so. For that. <laughs> yeah, well, you're, you're holding a space for that as well to, to support people in that because, you know, there's a lot of lone writers out there exactly. who say writing is a very solitary thing. It is, you know, but it doesn't have to be. Yeah, and 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 I know I know for myself, and I know for many, you know, you write and you think, oh, maybe I'll get that out in the world somehow, I'll get that published, or there's a lot of yeah. self-publishing going on at the moment, of course, and yeah, you know, some looks good. there's a lot of yeah, and so and there's well, I, I do it. <laughs> but, yeah. you know, there's a lot of refusals there, and and it's very yeah. easy for people to give up and say, well, you know, nobody's accepting my work, you know, and so how do I manage this? And yet I have a really strong message that I want to put out there. Um, yeah. And um, that other people might want to read because there's yes. no point in having a message you want to get out if nobody wants to read it. I, I'm thinking that perhaps by this time next year, we might think that it's we need to set up a publishing house to publish some of this. Nice. And that's not something I want to do on my own. I, yeah, I'm kind of a bit overwhelmed <laughs> at the moment, but I can see I also because I've also got editor of major public, one of my old editors and um, a woman who's an editor for BBC and other people who are going to also come in in the times in between and talk about how to get it out there. Right, right because that is no point exactly we're all writing and we can't get it out then there's no point yeah. we've got to find the ways i want to get into netflix i want to get into amazon and i think there are people in each of these who do get it yeah. we just need to reach them and get them to come and talk to us also i spent the first bit of lockdown me and rob wilton and toby peace who's a, a film producer um all got together and crowd wrote the three of us um uh a television thriller series that again was designed to get us from where we are to where we need to be. We haven't sold it yet, but I loved I had never written collaboratively before mm. and it was so much fun. Nice, yeah. And we had yeah, we had Zoom calls every Sunday and either Robert or I would write frantically for the next week. And then Toby was our editor and and it was a really inspiring process. Nice. So I'm also hoping to open the way up and just join because writing is so solitary, but I don't yeah. think it has to be. No, no, I think that that's very inspiring. Yeah. Do you do you ever write just for yourself? That's that's not for pub publishing or anything like that. Is there anything that you do that where you just think I just need to write? You don't. It's not. I haven't got time. I used to. I used to write loads of poetry. Um, nowadays, life. I just don't have any time. And at the moment, I suppose. I mean, the book might end up being just for me. Nobody else might want to write it, read it. I don't know. Um, I need to write this. You know, I'm not about to ignore. But that's an Humanic interesting thing. Anyway. It, it's it's that you you think I need to write this. Yeah, yeah, definitely. You know, so somewhere in yourself, it is for you. You know, I need to. There's something. I, I need. Also, you know, this was an instruction from from mm. things that I believe in and around which I had built my life. Right. And I, you know, you don't ignore that. I I, I wouldn't ignore it. And also, right. but but having kicked it off, you know, it's I want to know where it goes. Of course. It's, and I have no idea. I'm writing. I've got to hand in on the 26th to my agent uh, the first bit, which yeah. I think maybe another 10,000. And after that, I know what's happening there, and I know a couple of scenes at the end, and I have no clue right. about what happens in between. Um, but it's going to be fun finding out. So, cool. yeah, yeah. yeah so, I love that. I love that being able to hand it over and just say, okay, you show me where this yeah needs yeah to go and yeah. what this needs to be. Beautiful. Wow. Is there anything else you have to, that you'd really like to share with women writers at the moment? And people well, just to have belief in yourself, really. I think this is the thing about writing. I, I don't know about you, but I think 
I exist in a world where what I wrote yesterday is bollocks. What I wrote three weeks ago might be getting okay. What I wrote a couple of months ago, I look back and go, God, did I write that? That's okay, actually. Um, and and I still basically, you know, most days wake up and have no idea what I'm going to write tomorrow. So mm. knowing that that is the process, I think, stops it being um, traumatizing after a while, that this is just the way it is, so I don't need to worry about it. And And once you've got a piece of work under your belt, you know that you can do it. Don't expect it to get any easier. I think you know everyone thinks that by the thirteenth or fourteenth it's going to be an easier process, and it, it definitely isn't. No, um, so the only thing that that gets easier is that you know the process, mm. and and it's and there are days you'll get stuck and days where it flows, and that's just the nature of the world. So I think the key thing is just keep writing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Whatever you're doing, very write good. something. Very good. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Amanda. This has been fascinating, really interesting. Lovely to get to know you and to, to, you know, just to hear your voice and some of your experiences. That's uh, fantastic. Yeah, I realise we got to the end and I know nothing about you and what you write. Yeah, don't worry about that. You know, we're here to find out about you. You can tell me when we start recording. (laughs) (laughs) I'll say goodbye on this and then... All right, thank you. Scott that was such a pleasure to interview her and uh, yeah if you like that then maybe you'll join me some more for other podcasts with various interviews as well as some of my own tales and some of the experiences of my own writing life look out for me on Soul Purpose with Caroline Carey and uh, yeah take a look at my website Middle Earth Medicine Hope to see you soon. Bye. Thank you so much for listening right to the end. I hope you enjoyed that podcast. And remember, you can be in touch with myself or this speaker. My website is middleearthmedicine.com. We have a wonderful membership platform that you can join for just £5 a month. And we have lots of recordings and interesting information that we can share with you there, plus meeting online with regular groups. You can also find the details of our speaker in the box below with their links, their websites, and a little bit of information about them. Thank you for joining me and being part of this Middle Earth Medicine community. I hope you'll listen to our next show. Please follow, share, like, whatever you can do to help this community to grow. We really appreciate you. Thank you.